In our Salty Again series, we have been acknowledging the fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, we sometimes move in and out of saltiness, and we've actually been identifying those things that can compromise our saltiness. Last week, we learned that we are actually the objects of a battle that is raging around us. It's an epic tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. Now, the flesh, you need to understand, is allied with the organized powers of sin and evil, while the spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, his agency is to be a helper in dwelling the believer to guide us to righteousness. Now, the battle between the flesh and the spirit is for our allegiance. If the flesh is victorious, then we learn that we walk in and spread the destructive power of sin. But if the spirit wins the war, then we walk in the life-giving, peace-producing power of God. Now, what we discovered last week is that the winner of this tug-of-war isn't necessarily the force with the most pulling power, but instead it is the force that we think upon. It is the focus of our minds that determines the winner of this tug of war. As Paul wrote in sorry, I'm going to get it right in a minute. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verse 5, this is what he said, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So whatever we set our minds upon is going to gain the upper hand. And here's what we know about this battle. It it is sometimes in the battle... The flesh is winning and sometimes the spirit is winning. But listen, prolonged focus, the prolonged focus of our minds is ultimately going to determine the long-term winner of the war. We may lose some battles, but we can win the war. If our long-term focus is on the spirit, then we will regain and retain our saltiness. But if it's in the flesh... Our saltiness is going to be compromised and we will be completely ineffective for the mission that God has called us to. So since our saltiness depends upon our mindset, here's the question we need to ask and answer. What does it mean to have our minds set on the Spirit? What does it mean, in the words of Roman 8, to live in accordance with the Spirit? Fundamentally, it means that we aspire to, think on, and strive for uninterrupted life with the Spirit. I'm going to say that again because it's important to understand. Fundamentally, it means we aspire to, think on, and strive for uninterrupted life with the Spirit. In in the best sense of the word, living in accordance with the Spirit means that life with the Spirit becomes an honorably fanatical 
obsession with us. Now let me ask you a question. Is life with the Spirit an honorably fanatical obsession with you? Is it the desire of your heart to walk in uninterrupted fellowship with the Spirit of God? Now, in honor of Valentine's Day, and guys, I hope that's not news to you. Today is Valentine's Day. I, I want us to think about this quest for uninterrupted life with the Spirit in the realm of romantic love. Okay, what, what does a lovesick suitor who's pursuing the girl of his dreams do? With his mind set on his beloved, he pursues her with an unshakable zeal. He will not be denied. So, what does he do? First, he determines to know everything about her. What her favorite color is, her favorite song, her favorite candy. He wants to know what she likes to do and where she likes to go. No fact about her is insignificant because he needs to be able to see the world through her eyes. But that's not all. It's not just about knowing her. He's going to do everything in his power to put himself in her presence. With the Old Testament, Ruth. He would say, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. With his mind set on the woman of his dreams, the suitor is going to do everything he can to be with her as much as is humanly possible. But it's not just for the sake of being in her presence. The objective for the lovesick suitor is to win her by demonstrating his love and devotion. How's he going to do that? He's going to serve her interests and meet her desires. And knowing everything about her is going to equip him for that task. So he will be there with her favorite candy, wearing her favorite color, humming her favorite tune. All that in hopes of finding the key to her heart so they can be together. Now that gives us just an idea about what it means to have our minds set on the Spirit. We want to know the Spirit of God. As we sang today, we want to be where He is. We want to do what He wants us to do. Why? So we can live in one accord with God. Now, where that analogy breaks down, and by the way, I hope you know this, every analogy breaks down at some point, but where it breaks down is that we don't have to have the key to God's heart to earn His love. That's not the way it works. See, He already loves us and wants desperately to spend time with us. As a matter of fact, He feels much more strongly about you than you do about Him. There's no question about it. How do I know that? Because he loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross so that he could have a relationship with you. So this quest, honorably fanatical obsession 
with the Spirit of God doesn't lead to us earning his love. But where the analogy holds is that we really want to live in such a way as to please God. Here's what Romans 8 goes on to tell us. It says that if our mind is governed by the flesh, we live our lives in the realm of the flesh, and we are hostile to God. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say, you cannot please God living in the realm of the flesh. And by contrast, we know that the mind governed by the Spirit lives in the realm of the Spirit and does please God. So so the question for those of us who want to please God, and I hope that's you. The question is, how do we live in the realm of the Spirit? What's the process? Now again, remember, it's, it's not that we're trying to earn God's love, but rather we are endeavoring to please Him. Now, the scripture is crystal clear about what is required to please God. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at one verse, Hebrews chapter 11, and I want you to circle it. I want you to spend time memorizing it this week. Plant this in your heart and let it bloom. Hebrews 11.6 tells us what we need to do to please God. It says, and without faith, it is impossible To please God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In the words of verse 6, faith that pleases God is believing that God exists first and foremost. And second, it is believing that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, let me give you some facts about the world we live in. The fact is that a vast majority of people believe that God exists. There are certainly atheists and agnostics in our numbers. They are growing, but atheists represent a very small minority of people. The latest statistics reveal that only 7% of people worldwide identify as atheists or agnostics, and that number holds to be exactly true in these United States of America. 7 out of 100 people, 7%. So we can responsibly deduce that 93% of people, if my math is right, 93% of people say they believe in the existence of God. 93 out of 100. But do you think 93% of people in the world we live in have the kind of faith that pleases God? no chance. There's no chance. So, in what way do we need to believe in the existence of God if we hope to live in accordance with His Spirit and ultimately please Him? Well, at the heart of the issue is 
that we must believe that God exists as he revealed himself in Scripture. I'm going to say that again. We must believe that God exists as he revealed himself through Scripture. Now, Deuteronomy 5, and if you have your Bibles, turn over there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's the fifth book in the Bible. It, it has Moses retelling the story of the presentation of the Ten Commandments, which God personally gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, I, I want you to note as I read this, the people's response to God revealing himself to Moses on that mountain. Deuteronomy chapter 5 I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Now, again, this is Moses telling the story. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, out of the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. This was it. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. They were operating in a representative form of government. So when all the leaders and the elders came to Moses, they were speaking for everyone. And this is what you guys said. The Lord our God has shown us, has revealed his glory and his majesty and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. God-pleasing faith believes that God exists as he revealed himself. And how did he reveal himself? The people said, clearly, he revealed himself in glory and majesty. God revealed himself in glory and majesty. Now he is majestic. What does that mean? It means that he is exalted above all. He is the one true living God above all other gods and, and he is above all other conceptions of reality. He's above all gods, and he is reality above all other conceptions of reality. That's his majesty. Now, his glory comes from the fact that he knows, lives in, and reveals truth. He is pure. He is holy. There is nothing false in him. He is gloriously the God of truth, and one truth governs all. So, faith in the one true God, the living God, faith that that God exists, necessitates one response from those who have faith. And the people got it right. Look at verse 27 of Deuteronomy 5. They said to Moses, Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says, and tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, and what are we going to do? We will listen and obey. We will listen and obey. Those who have faith 
that pleases God respond to His voice by listening and obeying, which we choose to do because we see clearly His majesty, He is above all, and His glory. He is the gracious revealer of truth to live by. Here's the bottom line. Faith in the existence of God means that we trust who God has revealed Himself to be through His Word, and therefore we willingly submit to the way He tells us to live. We willingly submit, joyfully submit, to the way He tells us to live. Listen, created man doesn't get to recreate the Creator, making Him softer or more tolerable. Making Him somebody that, that we agree with more easily. Faith in His existence means that we live life His way according to His will. That's the faith that pleases God. Now, 93% of the world and 93% of our fellow countrymen say they believe in the existence of God. But that number drops off precipitously when we round up all the people that believe in Him on His terms. In 2019... 63% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. 63 out of 100. And we would assume, because the Bible is the book that guides our convictions and our living, we would assume that means that 63% of people in the United States believe in God as revealed in Scripture. But that's not true either. In 2005, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton identified an emergent belief in God that is different from God that is revealed in the Bible. Uh, it was emergent within teenagers at that time in 2005. A majority then of Christian teens were embracing this new belief system and today, because they have grown up, it has found its way into the church at large. But it's not only that group that believes it. This philosophy, this mindset, this belief in God, recreated to be softer and more palatable, is sweeping through the Christian church. Now, what, what is that belief system? They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, MTD. And it has five primary tenets. I want you to listen to what they believe it teaches. A God exists, we can agree with this one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Check. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible 
and most world religions. God's objective for people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about mountaintop spirituality. Is it any wonder that mountaintop spirituality is sweeping through the church if we believe the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself? Number four, God, he doesn't really need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And number four, good people, all good people, go to heaven when they die. Good people, all good people, go to heaven when they die. So here's, here's the basic idea. God is really into good moral living. It's moralistic. If we're good and if we have a problem, God then is obligated to step in and solve that problem because what he really wants for us is the goal of life. That is what we want, to feel good and be happy. So our God is obligated to make sure that we feel good and are happy. Wasn't Jesus a man of sorrows who came to suffer that we could have life and have it more abundantly? Didn't Paul say that he wanted to know the sufferings of Christ? Now, what makes us good people? According to MTD, listen closely to this. This is where we find it all through our culture. We are good people if we give other people the freedom to find happiness by living as they choose. We are moral, good people if we present to other people the freedom to find happiness by living as they choose. We are good if we set people free from having to conform to unchosen restrictions so they can feel good and be happy. In other words, we are good if we throw out truth and a high standard established by the glory and majesty of God, if we throw that out and say, no, just, just chase your feelings. Follow your urges and desires and you will find happiness and feel good. Let me give you a couple of examples. If God's Word, under this thinking, if God's Word defines marriage too narrowly, well, then we need to change the definition so everybody can do what they want to do and feel good about themselves and be happy. If God's word is too puritanical in its perspective that sex is reserved for marriage, then let's just ignore that. 
The main thing is to be happy and feel good. So there's no reason to crowd people with these unchosen restrictions. And if God's word has, has an opinion about how we should respond to him with our finances, well, he's just getting way too close now. And so we'll just tear that part of the Bible out too. And we'll just manage things the way we think they should be managed. Because if, if I'm generously giving to God, then I'm limiting myself and my capacity to experience what I want to experience. Those are, those are unchosen restrictions that I, I should not be bound by because they don't really feel good. And in the moment, they actually don't make me happy. Now, obviously... That's not belief in God, in His majesty and glory, as revealed in Scripture. Smith and Denton conclude that in MTD, religion, listen to this, religion is about God responding to the authoritative desires and feelings of people. That's the heart of it. Religion is about God responding to the authoritative desires and feelings of people. So here's, here's what that means. In our culture, what this growing belief says is that what we want is ultimate authority. And God serves as a guarantor of our desires and as a therapist who will help us feel good along the way. Obviously, this view is not the faith view that pleases God. Why? Because it's not based on His revealed reality. It celebrates the glory and majesty of people rather than the glory and majesty of God. It actually makes a God out of our desires and urges. So today, even many Christians don't believe that God exists as revealed because many among us have recreated Him into a being that serves us rather than one that we are to seek, serve, and submit to. And that's life in the flesh that is hostile to God and does not please God. To please God, we first must believe that He exists as He revealed Himself, and then we submit to that reality. To please God, we believe that He exists. What was the second criterion of God-pleasing faith? You remember? Look back at Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, the second element of God-pleasing faith is belief that He is the rewarding God. But He rewards on His terms. The qualifier is that we earnestly seek Him. I think most everybody who believes in the existence of God believes that he rewards. 
where we run aground with this notion is that a growing number of people believe that God, since he's the God of love, rewards all. Because love requires rewarding all. If he is love, he loves all and rewards all. So, that means we essentially believe that everybody that breathes gets a participation trophy from God. But here's the reality. If there are rewards for earnestly seeking him, then if God is just and if he is glorious and magisterial, then there must be consequences for earnestly rejecting him or for ignoring his commands. Otherwise, there is no glory or majesty. The Israelites got it in Deuteronomy 5. You remember what they said to Moses after he came down the mountain, presented the Ten Commandments? First they said, hey, these rules for living reveal the glory and majesty of God. We are so excited that by His grace He has revealed to us the path that we should take so that we can find life and have it more abundantly. And then they said, we're shocked to learn that a human... Now think about what they're saying. We are shocked to learn that a human can speak to God and live to tell about it. What, what, what was that about? Why were they surprised that Moses had the privilege of speaking to God? Because we certainly are not surprised by that. It's because they knew that God was holy and just. That he was glorious and magisterial. They knew that he had standards that they failed to meet. And since they had the right faith about God's existence, they knew that he could not dwell with sin. They knew that God could not leave the guilty unpunished, and they knew that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So, they feared being in God's presence. Now, what's interesting is they actually believed more, their pendulum swung more to punishment than reward. But remember, Hebrews eleven six says that Faith that pleases God believes that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, let me tell you what was happening in that event when they got the Ten Commandments. God's grace was being revealed to them. He was teaching them that he doesn't always respond to us as our sins deserve. That he's a patient, long-suffering God whose mercies are new every morning, not because we are good and deserve it, but because he wants us to be in relationship with him. He doesn't give us grace because he, he thinks that we're created to be happy and to feel good. He extends grace to us because he wants to connect with us. He wants to guide us to holiness. And listen, by His grace, He provides for us the guidelines. 
You understand, sometimes we think about God's rules as, as just an imposition. Like, uh, something else we have to do. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. God, high and lifted up, doesn't have to tell us the way we were created to go. But he does. He provides what Jesus referred to as a narrow road. A narrow road on which we find life. And if we stay on that narrow road, we're going to find life and peace. But the narrow road necessarily means no's and yeses. There are things we should say no to, and there are things we should say yes to. It means that we embrace unchosen, unpreferred restriction. Why? By faith. <laughs> By faith in the fact that we believe God exists. And that God is high and lifted up, and that He knows the way we should go. That it's our earnest pursuit, in our earnest pursuit of holiness, our faith believes that God knows the way and that He rewards those who pursue the way. There is reward for pursuing God as He is for earnestly seeking to honor God by trusting His truth and obeying His commands. Does that mean that, that we can't just do what we think will make us feel good and be happy? Absolutely. Because here's the deal. We don't actually know what will make us feel good and experience satisfaction. God does. We know it by faith because God revealed it in His Word. We can't just do whatever we want to do if we're going to live with a faith that pleases God and in accordance with the Spirit of God. Doing exactly what we want to do is called life in the flesh. It is the mindset on the flesh. And it's hostile to God. And it ends in death and destruction. The world tells us that your best life is found in doing whatever you want to do. Whatever you believe will make you happy. But that's life in accordance to the flesh. It's chaos and death. In contrast, a life of faith is what brings joy, peace, and real lasting pleasure. Did you know that God wants you to experience pleasure? You know, God is not a fun sponge. God's desire, He sent Jesus that we could have 
eternal life and abundant life. Where do we find his pleasure? In the realm of the Spirit. We find his pleasure as we are pleasing him. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. That's your grace. You make known to me the path of life. And you fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. Listen. Here's the question. Are you seeking to please God by faith? Are you honorably, fanatically obsessed with uninterrupted life with the Spirit? We know how that works. We, we see it in the lovesick young man that pursues his beloved. We know what it means to focus on what we want. The question is, what do you want? Life in the realm of the Spirit that pleases God and realizes the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those things that bring great joy to the heart, satisfaction to the soul, and the knowledge, the encouraging, refreshing knowledge that we are living to please our loving Creator. We can pursue life that pleases God and experience life or we can pursue life in the flesh that pleases us at a much lower more base level temporarily experiencing a fading pleasure does not bring lasting peace. You get to decide. Life in the flesh or life in the spirit. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we are grateful that your word graciously reveals the path that we should embrace. Give us wisdom, Father, to pursue life with you. A life of faith that pleases you. So we can be salty again. So we can not only enjoy you and your presence, but we can spread the hope that we find in Jesus. Now, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just say that all, all this life begins with faith in Christ. Jesus 
is the path of life that God made known to us. It's trusting him to forgive us when we fail. The Israelites got it right on the base of that mountain. The Ten Commandments, we're, we're going to have a hard time living up to them. We, we all fall short of the glory of God, and we need forgiveness. And we found that forgiveness in Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows and suffering who gave his life that we could have life abundant and life eternal. It begins with placing your faith in Jesus, recognizing that because you're a sinner, you need God's forgiveness. And then the journey begins. When you place your faith in Jesus, the scripture says the Spirit of God takes up residence in your soul. Now, you get to decide if you're going to live a life in pursuit of uninterrupted harmony with the Spirit or if you're going to run from the Spirit and silence His voice and thereby avoid his peace, joy, and satisfaction. Father, for those that need to come to place their faith in Jesus today, I, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage to embrace the freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of life. The hope of joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. Father, for those of us who follow you, I pray that we wouldn't settle for temporal pleasures of the flesh, but we would live the life of faith that pleases you experience the beautiful reward of your presence. Father, find us faithful. Lead us to faith that pleases you and changes the world so we can be salty again. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.